Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. I'm glad you're here. I'm very excited to be here. I'm not Brad. My name is Will. I'm not that big. Not in a bad way. Just got out of Thanksgiving. Got to clarify. Um... I usually work with youth and young adults, but always love the opportunity uh, to come and be with you and preach on Sunday mornings. I, I would like to go ahead and get everybody to do something that should be natural for us, but maybe it is not. So today specifically with us breaking open into Advent, discussing God with us, Emmanuel, I would love for everybody to have a Bible in their lap. And if you use an app, I'm cool with that usually. Nine times out of ten, I'm, I'm fine with the app. But today, I'd love it if you had a paper Bible. So look in the, in the chair in front of you and go ahead and grab one of those. And if you're looking for where we will be, it'll be either on page 807 or on 631. So go ahead and start, start flipping there now. One of the main things that we're going to see as we open up the beginning chapters of Matthew in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 is this idea of a great level of anticipation being fulfilled in Christ. Now, one of the beautiful things about this as a theme is it's very easy for us to get behind. One, it's Christmas season, but two, our lives are kind of filled with anticipation day in and day out. And so, for example, right now there's a little gift sitting under our tree, and my wife is anticipatory about what that might be. She doesn't know, but she's excited. I think all of us can go back and remember as kids what that was like. Um, Thursday, I was at my parents' house, and we were having dinner, and... There was a lull in the football game, so I decided to be, like, good in family and things like this. And so, that's my confession to you and before God. Uh, and, and so, I asked my mom, I said, Mom, what's one of your favorite Christmas memories? No, no, I didn't say that. I said, what was one of your favorite Christmas gifts as a kid? And she gave me an answer that really did two things. One answered the question, and then one did what your parents always do in making you feel like you had it way better than they did. You know what I'm talking about? So, so she's thinking and she's thinking and she's like, oh, it would be a Barbie doll. Which in one sense was like, oh, that's cute. It was a Barbie doll. In the other sense, like she didn't mean it. But you kind of felt this weight of, consider all the things you have received, my son. I got a Barbie doll. And I was fine with that. And it was wonderful. It was the best Christmas of my life. It was a Barbie doll. And, and, and I was telling her that I remember, I was probably five years old or six years old. And you know how some memories as kids, they just stick? Like, if you could paint, you could paint them, but you can't. And so, I remember walking out of of my bedroom door, and there was a hallway leading to the living room where the Christmas tree was. And I walked out, and I turned, and I knew what I was looking for, but I didn't see it at first. And you kind of have that kid that, like, oh, what if, what if Santa missed it? Like, ugh, it's going to get awkward. And I turn. And it's not there. And then I walk a little bit further and a little bit further and I see it. It was one of those three-wheeled ride-on toys. It was a Thundercats one. I don't know if y'all remember Thundercats. Lionel. Oh, okay. And it had the powder blue panther head on the front of it. And when I saw it, I went ballistic nuts. Just went crazy. Because 
It was all that I had ever wanted. And there it was. I'd been anticipating it. I'd been watching the tree go up and the lights and the blah, blah, blah. And finally the day came. Anticipation is something we can get. It doesn't matter where you are or how old you are in this room. You may be anticipating a gift under a tree, but you may also be anticipating that guy or that girl becoming the husband or the wife. Or maybe you're at a different stage in life and what you're anticipating, what you're looking forward to is you found out recently that you're pregnant. And all you can do is think about what is that going to be like? And you're excited and you're nervous and you're worried and all these kinds of things. And, 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 and so our lives are kind of filled with these different types of anticipations. I can't go beyond kid. That's kind of where my, my lifespan caps. But I'm sure grandkids are great too. And paying off your mortgage is wonderful. And things like that. I'm just not there yet, so I can't give you that illustration. In life, our anticipations can let us down. God never will. And that's one thing we need to know before we even open Matthew. In life, our anticipations will let us down. About eight months ago, we went to get a dog. My wife wanted a small little chihuahua-ish yippy dog. I thought this was a horrible idea. I still do, but by the grace of God, God had my back. Because she goes... And she finds this cute little pound pup. And she says, well, what breed of dog is this? And I think the rule at pause, if you work for them, is tell them what they want to hear. We need to get rid of these dogs. <laughs> I think that's like step one in training. So just know that, okay? So they're like, oh, this is a chihuahua. And she's like, it is so cute. How big is it going to get? 14 pounds, you know. Little old thing. That dog is eight months old and knocks people over because it's a 60 pound, it's got to be full blood black lab. <laughs> when I pull in my driveway, it's looking at me in my window. It's like, what's going on, man? <laughs> that, okay, so in life, our anticipations of this cute little can turn into something quite different. That's not the case with God. Everybody look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to start here, but I love the Old Testament. The Old Testament is probably my favorite thing to teach out of. So let me just read this story, the Christmas story. Many, many of us have heard it before, and I'm not going to make a comment on it. But I want us to be open to something this morning. I want us to not lull over a scripture we've heard before. I want us to not assume that because I've heard something, I understand and fully grasp something. I think that's a pretty proud way to approach God's word. And I just want us to, to listen to the story, and then I want us to be open to the fact that there may be a bigger, truer, deeper, greater reality behind it than maybe we are typically accustomed to coming across in the Christmas season. Let me read this and I'm going to pray for us. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But... As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, that's huge, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Pray with me if you would. Father, as we open up your word, I approach it with great inadequacy. Each of us approach this with great inadequacy. And yet you have given it to us as a gift. You have given us your word in a method and in a way that we can grasp and we can understand. And that understanding can point us to appreciation and response. And so, Father, that is my prayer for us this morning. That is this incredible truth The principle of Emmanuel, God with us, that we could never have reached you, you reached down to us, and it was not in some haphazard, half-hearted way, you came. God with us, the Son of God, manifest in the flesh to live the life that we failed to live and die the death that we should have died. God, as we read this story, May we read it with hearts that are excited and on fire for the truth that you have packed in your word. May history and prophecy, may may that not become the things that cause our eyes to glaze over. But Father, may the story that you have written grip us. And I pray that the grip of this would not let go even when the Christmas season does. I pray that we would be blown away by a manger in February. I pray that we would be blown away by a manger in August. That this would not be a truth that we look at for a few weeks and then put to bed and forget the incredible nature of what you did for us here. And it's in the name of your son we pray. Amen. Amen. What I'd like to do this morning is to tell you how the Old Testament, specifically through four prophets, Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, and Hosea, how they point to our Savior and what that should do in us. What I want us to do is I want us to realize that Matthew did not make a mistake when the very next thing that he said after he will save his people from their sins is he began to look back. I want us to realize that that was done on purpose. That Matthew knew exactly what he was doing. In fact, the words to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the promise is used by the prophet, excuse me, is used over 12 times in his book. The lion's share on the front and in four or five of them in these, in these first two chapters. There's a reason that Matthew is doing this. There's a reason that God does this because it seems a little bit counterintuitive. Everybody look back at verse 21. This is the crux of the matter. This is what everybody's excited about. This is why shepherds are freaking out. And this is why wise men are on a walk. This is why a king is freaking out in his, in his throne and he's shaking like a little leaf. Why? Because, let me find it, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. You can't appreciate something if you don't know the history behind it. You can't really understand it. You certainly can't respond to it. Yesterday, the staff had a, a Christmas party, and we went out to this incredible chapel, uh, not chapel, to this incredible uh, cabin called Chapel Falls, and 
all of us gathered together in a room. But before that happened, uh, I was outside because one of my kids was still asleep in the car. And Joseph, who isn't here? Kids church, serving. Everyone should be doing this. Joseph hops out of the truck and he comes to me and he says, Will, I got my axe. And I'm like, that's awesome because he's been talking to me about this axe for weeks. And he said, would you like to see it? Well, of course I'd love to see it. So he goes back and he gets this axe and he brings it to me. And it's, it's pretty neat. It's an axe. <laughs> but it's really incredible to him because he knew the history of it. You see, stamped into the metal of that axe are the numbers 1945. He knows the history of this axe head. He got a specific handle and fashioned it to fit the head himself. He was able to tell me the history of the metal and why it was so important and why this axe is better than any axe that anybody else in this room has. And Lowe's doesn't have a chance at coming up with anything close to the glory of this axe. Why? Because he knew the history of it. He had studied it. Let me give you another example. Behind me right now are two crosses on a wall. If instead of being up there, we had come in this morning and I had put, the, put that cross in the yellow room. I think that's, it goes brown, yellow. So I think that's when kids are like starting to walk and move around a little bit. No? What's the yellow room? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Don't give me, don't give me bad information when I'm up here. <clears throat> so if we were to have done that this morning, here's what would have happened. The people in the blue shirts that are volunteering would have walked in and they would have seen it and they would have said, something's out of place for two reasons. One, this is not smart. These kids fall down all the time and this is made out of hardwood with sharp corners. But secondly and more deeply, this symbol is a bigger deal than to be left on the floor of a kid's room. That's what an adult would have done. Why? Because they understand the story of the cross. So when they look at the symbol of the cross, it means something to them. They appreciate it. They can respond to it. The little kids in there would see it as a climbing toy. They would see it as something to bang on. They can't appreciate it. They can't respond to it because they don't understand it. Do we have a little nativity uh, image that we can show up real quick? <clears throat> the same thing is true of the nativity. Now when you and I look at this, we can't appreciate it. You can't appreciate the manger. You can't respond to the manger if you don't understand the history behind it. So while we could read this story and completely glaze over every time, and there are numerous times that the author says, as was foretold by the prophet, as was foretold by the prophet, what would happen is we would have a neat Christmas story. But we wouldn't understand the meaning that's behind that symbol. Before there was ever a cross, there was a manger. And I submit to you that its purpose was not to have light stapled on it four weeks out of the year. That there's something bigger to it. But we have to be willing to go backward to understand the meaning of the major so that that symbol for the rest of our lives does something more than just make us think about the way Americans celebrate Christmas. There's got to be something bigger to that. So here's what I would like to do. And this is why I got everybody to get their Bibles. 
everybody flip to the table of contents. And if you don't have one, that's okay. Just look on with a neighbor. I want you to look at the table of contents. And while you're doing that, I want to recommend a book. This is a book by Mark Dever. It is called, What Does God Want of Us Anyway? A Quick Overview of the Whole Bible. I checked the other day. There were two of these in the resource room. And it is teeny, I mean small. And we're about to have some free time on our hands. Okay? So can I recommend, unless, okay, I'll give you a pass if you're a wife or a mom. This is like crazy time for y'all. I love being a guy. I, I should still serve my wife. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> that was not a, I told you I'm going to watch football. Okay. But what I am saying is, we've got more time on our hands in these coming weeks, unless you're a wife or a mom, than, than usual. Go grab this book and check it out. It'll take you all of an hour or two to read through. And it is so good for causing you to look at this book and not be confused by the whole thing. And, and, and to really feel like when you grab your Bible, you're grasping your Bible and, and, and what the major themes are and things like that. So let me recommend that to you. Here's what I want to do. I love teaching the Old Testament like I told you. But the Old Testament is extremely difficult for most of us to feel comfortable reading. And the main reason is this. We start reading it and then all of a sudden we hit Job or something and we're like, where did this come from? When is this? And we don't know. And then we get to Psalms and it's talking about David. And we're like, well, I just finished David a long time ago. That was in Samuel, right? I mean, like, why am I dealing with David now? So, can I for a moment give you a kids church illustration that I think will help you? Can, can we do that? Okay. All right. Here you go. Sermon illustration. Uh-oh. All right. The other day I had a tree that was falling, uh, about to fall on my house. It was rotten from the inside. So if you guys and I got together, we put a rope around it and we pulled it and then we cut the thing down. It wouldn't have worked if the rope wasn't strong enough. When the tree was cut, it would have just broken the rope and it would have fallen and hit the house and... Karen Ann would still be weeping and in tears and things like that. But the rope was strong because of the way that it was made. This is how I want you to understand the Bible and specifically the Old Testament. The way that a rope is constructed, this is a rope, but the way that it's constructed is there are individual strands or threads or fibers. The stronger the rope is made up of what the fibers actually are. Then these things are taken together and they're woven into cords. In this case, there are three cords because it works for the purpose of my illustration. Then those three cords are braided even tighter into a rope and you can go on and on and on. You can make it as thick as you want and as strong as you want. Here is how I want you to look at the Old Testament. Everybody look in your table of contents. You don't have to count them. You can trust me. There are 39 of those. Let me catch up with you. There are 39 books in the Old Testament. Starting with Genesis and ending in Malachi, there are 39 threads now, here's what you have to know. This is what you've got to get. It doesn't matter if you're in Psalms or Genesis or Ecclesiastes or Ephesians or Revelation. The Bible is one story about God's glory and the rescue of his people. It doesn't matter where you turn. That's what should be happening in your mind and in your heart. When I'm reading in Ephesians, it's one story about God's glory and the rescuing of his people. But what happens in the Old Testament is this. 
And, and it's even symmetrical. It's 17, 5, 17. The very first 17 books of the Bible, Genesis to Esther, are books of history. These are the ones that are easy for us because for the most part, they follow a chronological order. So those first 17 threads that make the first chord in the story are books of history. And it's easy for us because we love stories. When you were a kid, you loved being told stories. My kids sit on my lap and they say, Daddy, tell me a story of something catching on fire. That's what they do. That's all they want to know. They're like, Daddy, tell me another story of when you caught something on fire. My dad has more stories about that than I can remember, but that's what they love to hear. We're driving in the car. Dad, tell me a story of a fire. And I've got a lot of them, so it works out. So that's why when we open Genesis, we don't feel terribly confused. I get it. There's a story about creation. Okay. There's a story about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I can follow this. We move on into Exodus. There's a story about Moses. We move on into Samuel and the kings. We've got stories about David. We understand David. He's the guy who killed the giant. We got that. We understand Saul. He was the king that wasn't so great. We understand David and Bathsheba. I've heard the story. And on and on and on it goes. But it begins to get complicated for us and diluted when we move from that one chord of 17 to the next five. Look at it. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Why are they there? They don't fit. It's not in chronological order. It's not supposed to be. When the Bible was put together like this, what it was doing is this. It was saying, here's your history in the first chord. First 17 books. The next five are going to be the human experience in those books. That's why we can read about David and his incredible sin with Bathsheba. The murdering of an innocent man. And then, in this next chord of five, we can read in Psalms the heartbreak that he was feeling in that historical moment. Do you see it? These five books, Ecclesiastes, Solomon, how is it that I find what is important in life? Well, Solomon, you, you already lived back here. Why are you here? Because I'm getting a microscopic lens into what it felt like, the human experience, the human narrative in those 17 histories. And then finally, it gets more complicated for us because the last chord of 17 is the prophets. The major and the minor prophets. Not major because they're more important or minor because they're less, just because Isaiah wrote a lot of stuff. He's a major prophet because it's a big book of the Bible. And and the funny thing of it is, when we look at those three sections of the Old Testament, we all feel way more comfortable with the first. It's, it's a narrative, right? Like, it, it's chronological. It's a story. I like stories. God tells stories. Jesus told stories. The Jews loved telling stories. They had an oral tradition history. I can relate to that. But then when we get to the prophets, it's like we have no clue what's going on. And there's a reason for that. Part of it is, let's just be honest, we don't open them and read them. But the other reason is they use language and symbolism that doesn't make sense to us. When we were in Uganda, if I was talking to the deaf children being translated into sign language about how God, no matter what difficulty we face, will come through for us. He watches out for his people. Remember 9-11. They would have had no clue what I was talking about. That's a symbol that doesn't reside in their heads. For you, it does. So in Amos, throw up Amos chapter 4. In Amos chapter 4 verse 1, this being one of the prophets, when we read, 
Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. We're like, what's a cow doing oppressing people? And we don't giggle, but we should, because Amos is making fun of rich women here, and he's calling them cows. Now, you're not laughing, but that's pretty funny. Amos is looking, and if we knew this region of Samaria to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee, we would know that this is beautiful pasture land, and all the cows there are fat and plump and healthy. And he's looking, and what he's prophesying against is the people, the husbands, and in this case, even the women were oppressing the poor. And he looks at them, and he calls them the cows of Bashan, who were rich and plump and fat and are only preparing themselves for slaughter. But we read this and we don't know because we don't know the history. But by not looking at the prophets, you miss God's commentary on history. First 17 books give us the history. The next five tell us the human experience in it. And then the prophets, the last 17, is God's commentary on that. It's incredibly important. Now why? Because when we go back to Matthew, he's going to be pointing back so that that nativity icon is not just some silly thing that we slap lights on four, time, four weeks of the year. It's bigger when God gives us his heart behind it. So everybody flip back over to Matthew. While you do, I want to read two things. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is the key to understanding the entirety of the Bible. The fall has just happened and we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise your heel. There will be contention between man and the enemy until I step in and save this thing and I'm gonna step in and save this thing. What I'm telling you is the Old Testament is important. We can't be New Testament Christians. Those are dumb Christians. We can't be red letter Christians. I'm just a red letter. You know, I mean, I really just focus. Then you're an idiot. Because God decided to put the whole thing together. If that's all he wanted, he would have let you Thomas Jefferson your Bible to no end. But he's got a problem with that. That's why when we look in Exodus, don't flip there now, it's going to pop up. When we read in Exodus, this same story about God's glory and the rescue of his people is right here. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then a riddle comes in and he says, but who will by no means clear the guilty? How? How is it 2,000 years before the coming of Christ they could read this and it not be a riddle? The God who forgives sin, who loves, but who will by no means, where is it? But who will by no means clear the guilty? How is he going to do it? How is he both going to forgive sin and hold sin accountable? Well, I would invite you to fast forward back to Matthew and look at one beautiful word. 
the reason Matthew points backward before he comes forward is because of this idea of God with us. Behold, verse 23. This is spoken by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And the same sins that God said he will punish are punished on God with us. And the same forgiveness that is promised in Exodus is received. Because just like Paul said when he was talking about that song, we have become his righteousness. So what I'd like to do is read the story again. But this time I want to work slow and does it, give me a head nod. Does everybody feel like they appreciate the importance of why these prophets and God's commentary on history is important when we look at the nativity? Is everybody tracking with me on this? Okay. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Not in another. This is how it happened. And it's important that it happened this way because there are ramifications if it didn't. If Jesus did not come from a virgin, there are ramifications. You can't just write what theology you want to believe. You end up designing a God that isn't God. This is how it happened. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Have you ever wondered why God was willing to show up to Mary and say, Hey, guess what? You're about to bear a child. And it's going to be mine before the event happened. You ever thought about that? What if Mary was just walking around and all of a sudden was like, What is going on? But God was good to her. He said, here's what's going to happen. He didn't do that to Joseph. Do you see that? He could have shown up to Joseph and sent an angel and said, Joseph, here's what's about to go down. Mary's going to get pregnant, okay? People are going to start looking at you funny, all right? I want you to be ready for that. He doesn't do it. Why? Because it was important to us that he considered divorcing her. You see, to be betrothed then means she would still have called Joseph her husband. Even though they had not yet consummated the their relationship, the betrothal was a contractual thing so that had Mary gone outside of that relationship, it would have been considered adultery even though they weren't yet married. And the penalty for adultery under the Mosaic law was death by stoning. See, there's a lot behind this story. Why did Joseph not get the heads up ahead of time? Because it's important to us that he considered divorcing her. Because otherwise we have to ask the question, is it really a virgin birth? If Joseph had no problem, this would become a very convenient scapegoat. But that's not the case. He's riddled with grief. He's frustrated. He's angry. When we look at the prophet Isaiah who is quoting here, we find more. Let's keep going. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. 
saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Typically, in the Old Testament, it was the women who named the children or the patriarchs. But one of the things that God is saying is, Joseph, it's my kid. I'm naming him, and his name will be Jesus, which means he saves the Savior. This is my kid, so I get to make the call. And then we have this prophecy. And all this took place, verse 22, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Everybody go to Isaiah. You're going to be jumping. Feel free to use your table of contents. There's nothing shameful about that. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 1. This is where it comes from. And when it refers to a virgin, it's not just simply saying a woman that has not had relations with a man. It's talking about the characteristics of a woman. That's why Mary was so important. Because of all the women it could have been seemingly from this, it would cause it to, to be not Mary. Mary would never do that. She's known for her purity. She's known for being chaste. That's not Mary. And God's like, that's the point. That's why I picked her, that you would know that it was me. Now, here's what we read in Isaiah. Now, how is it that this connects? Listen, uh, this is halfway through verse 1. The king of Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but couldn't yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, the king, and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go meet Ahaz. Dropping down to verse 4. Say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Jumping down now to verse 7. It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Isaiah is sent by God to tell the king in this chapter, you don't need to worry about these armies coming against you. Why? Because King Ahaz, instead of trusting God, was sending money to Assyria so that they would come to his rescue. Why trust God when I've got something else? And Isaiah steps up and he says, don't go that route. Now think about this. We're talking about God coming in the form of a man and he's pointing back to a time that they would have known when people were debating, do I trust God's way or do I go my way? Do I as King Ahaz pay a bunch of money to the Assyrians or do I trust God and God challenges him? He says, just ask me. Look, look here in verse, four, uh, verse 14, or excuse me, 11. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as you, let it be as deep as hell or as high as heaven. Just ask a sign of God. And Ahaz says, no, 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 I won't. I'm not going to test him. He was being a hypocrite. He didn't want God to pass the test because then he would have his arm twisted into trusting God instead of his own way. And it goes on in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Fine, you don't want to ask for one. I'm going to give you one anyway. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This is 700 years before the manger. And his name shall be Emmanuel. God with us. King Ahaz, I'm asking you a question. 
God says through his prophet Isaiah. God with us. I'm here. I'm right here. Are you going to trust me? Or are you going to go your own way? Now when we read in Matthew, the same thing, the same question is presented to you. There is a baby in a manger. You're going to trust him? Or are you going to trust you? God with us. And when we think about the absolute humility of that, we like fast forward through this. And I don't even know how to talk about it. I feel shameful talking about it simply because I love Jesus. Jesus was fully God and he was fully man when he was in that manger. Which means God needed his nose wiped. How humiliating is that? God needed a diaper change. God needed someone to pick him up and carry him. How humiliating is that? Why? Because he's showing us there is no depth, that there is no breadth, there is no height that my love cannot hit from my people. That's appropriate. I don't know if that song's right, no crying he makes. I've never found that in the Bible. But when we look at this and it points us forward, it shows us a God with an incredible, incredible amount of love. He had to be fully God. He had to be fully man. Or else he couldn't have lived the life that we should have and absorbed the wrath that we were owed. But let's keep going. Let's keep going. The virgin, keep going. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I'm not going to push into this a whole lot. I don't know how crazy difficult it must have been to be a guy with a pregnant wife that was pregnant before you were married, carrying forth this story. But I promise you that Joseph loved the fact that these prophecies existed. God never said it was going to be easy for us. He just said it would be good. And sometimes we have to decide to go for the good when it's not easy. Joseph sets an example for us in that. But it keeps going. What about the wise men? Chapter 2. Now after, uh, chapter 2 verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. We know this story. What's God's thought on it? What's his commentary? Why are we looking back? Where, verse 2 saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So God, in addition to doing something incredible with the virgin birth, does something cosmologically incredible with this star that we can't fully ex- explain. Maybe it was an angel that showed up and moved. Maybe it was some type of universe event. We don't know. We just know that it was a big enough deal to God to bring it to pass. And it goes on. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes, he inquired where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem, well, how did they know it? Because 700 years before Micah had said it in in chapter 5, verse 2. You don't have to flip there because it's right here in Matthew. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, 
For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And this chapter, I'm not going to hit this one, but this chapter even ends with a prophecy saying that he's going to come from Nazareth. Do you remember the comment? What good could come from Nazareth? God comes in one of the most despised, small, seemingly insignificant places. Why? Because God loves to stack the deck against himself. Why is it David killing Goliath? Why is it the small always overcoming the strong in God's story? Because the whole thing, no matter where you go, is one story about God's glory and the rescuing of his people. And God loves to stack the deck against himself because it shows how powerful he is when he uses us foolish little people. Robert's going to talk about that, I think, a little bit more next week. It jumps on. Everybody jump to Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. I wish we had time to go back and look at all these. We don't. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. Why? What does Matthew say? This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is God's commentary. I knew I was going to do this. My wife does this all the time to me and it drives me a little bit crazy. Somebody's done this to you in your life. One of our favorite things to do is watch movies. We love watching movies. So if we can get the kids to bed and nobody's needing to be in mommy and daddy's bed, then we'll we'll sit down and we'll watch a movie. And this is what always happens. I've never seen the movie. She's never seen the movie. We get 20 minutes into the movie. Some dude comes through a door and she leans and she says, who's that? I don't know. I'm watching the same movie you. I know everything that you know. And my knowledge goes nowhere beyond what you know. And now I have to just start postulating. And I don't want to get it wrong. I'm a guy. I think he's a bad guy. But he might not be. What am I supposed to do? And it's like we've been married. We just celebrated our nine year. We've been married for nine years. We dated for six before that. Half of my life has been spent with this woman. And every time we watch a movie, what's he about to do? I don't know. I'm along for the ride too. But when God gives us a story for his glory, he doesn't do that to us. He lets us say, who is that? That's my son. He's coming in 700 years. Hey, what's going on here? Let me tell you. This is why we can't disregard the Old Testament. This is why we can't disregard the prophets. Just because we don't understand all the symbolism. So when we read this, and it says, Out of Egypt I called my son, we need to look. Hosea chapter 11. If you would, please flip there. Feel free to use your table of contents. Hosea chapter 11. This chapter out of the book of Hosea is one of the most endearing sections of the work. 
Because it shows God as the loving father that he is. Listen to this and remember at the same time where we are in the Christmas story. Hosea 11, 1. And keep in mind, this happened, what did I say, 500? I've got it written down somewhere. Hundreds of years before. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. There it is. There's the prophecy. It has a kind of a small fulfillment here in Hosea, pointing forward hundreds of years to God answering the question, who is that? Verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. When somebody's standing in the baptismal, this is what I hear a lot. The more they were called, the more they went away. But by the grace of God, he rescued them. Because it doesn't matter where you are in this story. We're a part of this story. It's always about God's glory and the rescuing of his people. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I, this is God's commentary on history. It was I who taught Ephraim, my people, to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaw. And I bent down to them and fed them. This is the heart of a God that you will miss if you skip the Old Testament. This is the heart of a God looking at a manger saying, I've called you, but you keep turning away. But I'm going to teach you how to walk and I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to be the one that heals you. I'm going to be the one that shows you kindness. I'm going to be the one that shows you love. I'm going to be the one that makes your burden light. I'm going to be the one that comes down to you. Emmanuel, God with us. That's why he's looking back. Because it fills the whole picture. We see God. We can feel God when we go back. There are numerous other prophecies that we could continue to go on. There's another one there from Jeremiah in verse 17. 600 years prior to the event. There's another one at the end of Matthew that I already referred to in verse 23, talking about him coming from Nazareth. In the beginning, when I first read the scripture, and I said, that's a big deal. When it referred to Joseph as the son of David, we could go back to Ezekiel, and we could see that it was always God's plan to bring his Savior through that line because of the covenant and the promise that he had made with David. To be honest, we could be here for weeks because... Christ fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. But what I'd like to do is to tell you, this was a, a pretty difficult sermon for me to put together, to be honest with you. I was telling Brad this earlier. I, I, I just couldn't figure out how I, how I wanted to convey the truth to you in a way that I thought would actually hit and stick because my heart breaks for the fact that I feel like so few people look at the left side of their Bible. I feel like we miss a lot. 
And so here are some thoughts just on why, two things. One, why the prophecies and the story of the nativity and the coming of Christ are important. And, and in, in essence, maybe in a bigger bubble, why the Old Testament is important at all. So here are mine. The first one is, is pretty obvious, kind of an intellectual one. It brings validity to the Bible. This is, this is one unique thing that we have in our faith. We can point back hundreds of years, thousands of years, millennia, to God making a promise and keeping a promise. He makes his promise, he keeps his promise. And, and this should cause us, it shouldn't be the only reason, please understand that. This should not be the only reason, but it is one of the major reasons that we can trust this book. So I want to mention that to you, but what I really want to push in on is what this does for me devotionally. Because I think it's a healthy application for all of us. When I read Hosea and Jeremiah and Micah and Isaiah, when, when, when I see the gospel point back to Ezekiel, this is what it does in me. One, it tells me that God's in control. Now, most of us would head nod this. And I think it's easier for us to believe this in the big thing. No, let me not, not believe it. It's easier for us to live this in the big things than in the small. The biggest thing, by the grace of God, the greatest difficulty that, that I can remember going to in a big, big, heavy way is when my wife's um, mother passed away very unexpectedly, was living life, doing life, and then one day was gone. And I remember being in the hospital. I remember worship being played and people praying. And there was no doubt in my mind that God was in control in that moment. There was no doubt. And, and we know this because when we go to a funeral, when we go to a hospital, when something bad happens, we always have the same three things to say. I'm sorry. I'll pray for you. And if we're bold enough, we say, I'm sure God has a plan. But sometimes we don't even say that because we're scared to drag God into that dirt as though he's going to let us down. It's still true. It's hard, but it's still true. But I think for me, it's even harder in the little things. Like a few weeks ago, when I'm driving three hours to a family get-together that I didn't really want to be at. I love the people. It's Thanksgiving. Everybody understands this. But I'm driving three hours with three kids in the back. It's just bad. And then I'm coming home that same day. So I'm spending twice as much time in the car as I am eating turkey or hanging out with people. And like the numbers in my head are like, bad decision. You're using your time poorly. And then it's all like family and Thanksgiving. And you okay? And I get halfway there, not back. I get halfway there. And I just spent 400 bucks getting my car fixed up. There were a couple of pumps that went bad. And the same one that I just fixed, the power steering pump goes out. Pull off on the side of the road. And now this already overweight vehicle that gets no gas mileage whatsoever. It's like one highway, zero city. That's what it does. That's what our suburban gets. And, and, and we've got it loaded up with kids. Power steering goes out. So now I've got to drive this trip that I didn't even want to make. Like it's a tank. It's like a Bradley. I'm like, I'm sore three days later from having to turn the wheel of this ginormous vehicle. And they live in the woods. And I'm like, I do too. I feel bad for people now. The thing breaks. But this is what this is what this does for me devotionally. When I know God's in control, I can just take a deep breath and say, He's cool. 
It's all right that you just spent the money on it. It's okay that everything went bad. Keep your head about your will. God's in control. It's not just in the big stuff. It's in the little stuff. We prove the validity of our faith in the way that we live in the small things. Not just in the big. And it's when that little, not insignificant, but frustrating thing happens. It helps me to remember that God is going to keep his promises. So that when I read in Deuteronomy, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I believe it because I can see it time and time and time again. He's not going to leave me and he's not going to forsake me. Brad talked about this. Romans 8. This completely changes the way I read Romans 8. Because I believe that God's keeping his promise. Because I've seen it. So when I read Romans 8, here's what I get. I can't remember what I told you. 37 through 39. No, in all these things. Sound familiar? We just covered this. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's a promise. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels or rulers, things present to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I can believe that. That's what reading the prophets does for me, devotionally. That's what it should do to us. And it shrinks me. It makes me realize how small I really am. When I realize, I don't know if anybody owed my dad something that I'm supposed to be getting. I don't know. There's like no bloodline debt that I know of. That somebody made a promise to my dad or my granddad or my great granddad. That I'm just walking around saying, well, when's it going to happen? I don't have that. That's not the way our history works. But when I think about the folks that heard Isaiah 700 years before and they got excited and they got anticipatory and they started waiting and looking and looking, it shrinks me down and it causes me to maybe look at my Bible more rightly. Sometimes our application from Scripture is just bad. It doesn't mean the truth is bad. It's just our application is bad. You've got a bad boss. No offense. I'm just using it as an illustration. I think you're great. You've got a bad boss. And your first thought, but you know what? Doesn't matter how oppressed I am, God's got my back. Because I know that back during the days of slavery, before Moses came in, those people were oppressed. God rescued them. Okay, step one. You may not get rescued from that job. Okay? You may need to just be in a bad job so you can take care of your family. That is a glorious thing. Being in a job you love and taking care of your family, that's good. Being in a job you hate, taking care of your family, that's great. That's what men, that's a man thing. But how silly is it for us to use that as the context? That was 300 years of slavery. How bad is your job? Well, God's going to get, yes, the truth is right, but your application's horrible. That was slavery. Nobody's beating you. Do you see what I'm saying? And it's just our mindset. We look at our lives in these teeny little spiritual seasons. Well, right now I'm in a season of this. That may be true. I'm not making fun of you. But why do we think that all of our stuff's supposed to be wrapped up with a neat little bow by the time we die? Why is it that I feel like I'm in a season of anxiety or depression? That may not be a season, man. That just may be your life. Paul prayed that a thorn be removed. God said, no. This is my lot for you. 
But we treat our lives as though they're in these little bitty increments and I'm just waiting for God to, and now everything's fine. Then I'll move on. Oh, I'm in another season. Look, sometimes life's just tough. And sometimes we need to realize we're not that big a deal. God's a big deal. Jesus is a big deal. The story's a big deal. We are only a big deal because he loved us. That's it. We're only a big deal because he sought to put his love on us and rescue us. So we don't need to look at our lives as these little seasons where all of a sudden it's bad and then it's good. That's just not realistic. It shrinks me down. And then finally, when I look at the prophets, it applies the whole Bible to my life. Because when I look, I see the same sins and the same judgments and the same hope. What are you struggling with? You're struggling with lust? Read about David. That's not a new thing. You're struggling with pride? Check out Saul. Read a little bit on Samson and how that played out for him. It's right there, given to us. You got low self-esteem? Check out Gideon. You don't need to run to a, to a bookstore and find some better life now, smile more, drink less Coke or whatever. I don't know. Just read Gideon. Dude's hiding in a hole. That's pretty low self-esteem. When's the last time you went in your backyard and dug a hole and sat in it because you felt so bad about yourself? You feel like you're surrounded by morons? Read Job. <laughs> it's right there. When I look at the whole Bible, I find application for my whole life. The same judgment exists. The problem of sin in the Old Testament has the same judgment. Absolute, utter, eternal separation from God. But in the same breath, we've got the same hope. They were looking forward to a Messiah. We are halfway through the movie. We know who walked through the door. His son. All we have to do is trust him, love him, live for him, and watch the rest of the story unfold. That's what we do. God's already got it in hand. I'm going to close. Revelation <clears throat> chapter 21, 1 through 4. They looked forward to something and we looked forward to something. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. In case you haven't picked, this is, this is what we're looking forward to. Just like the people in the Old Testament were looking forward to Christ. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her, her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with Man, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God with us doesn't stop. That's why the manger shouldn't only have lights on it four weeks of the year. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The only problem is we're not quite there yet.
But that is very good news for some of us. Because some of us have seen the story and we've seen the manger. Maybe we've never understood the history behind it. So we couldn't appreciate it. We couldn't respond to it. God came to you because you never could have made it to him. When I close and pray, communion is right here. We understand the symbol of the cross because we understand the story behind it. But if you understand the story behind it and you've never responded to it, then I just want you to know today is an acceptable day to do that. Today is a day to say, I want to be in that story for God's glory and I need to be one that was rescued by this Son of God sent for me, Emmanuel. I'm going to pray and the band's going to come back up and we'll have communion. And I just want to encourage you with this. If you are in the family of faith, if you're a Christian, then this is open for you. If you're not a Christian, it's not. It's not because we want to exclude you. It's because it doesn't make sense. We're proclaiming the death and the resurrection of our Lord. And it doesn't make sense for you to do that if you haven't. But if you're at a place where you realize that now is the time for you to repent of those sins and trust in Christ, then find a Christian. Find one of the pastors. We would love to pray with you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the greatness of it, the grandness of it. And as we respond in communion, I I pray that it wouldn't just be a ritual or something that we do because we've done it before. The only way that we can truly respond is by appreciating and understanding the story. And so, Father, when we look at the manger and when we look at the cross, we, are, we see ourselves as people in great need of something, something we never could have provided on our own, but by your grace and through your love, you reach down to us and you show us love and you show us hope and you give us everything that we need for life and godliness. So, Father, I pray for us this morning. And as we come to your table, that we would come rightly examining our lives, not with assumption. And Father, that that you would do in us what only you can do in us. You would make us a people about your book, a people about your gospel. Father, that we would be a part of this great story that you've been writing the author you knew the beginning from the end and I pray that those that are yours would be rescued Father that that love would be seen that it would be felt and that we would rightly see you pray this in Christ's name Amen